0: Good morning. How are you? Good to see you in God's house. So we are in the book of Matthew uh, studying about who Jesus is in relationship to the various characters of the Christmas story. We're in Matthew 2. If you'd like to turn there now, I will also project the, the text if you would like to read along, along with the sermon outline. Uh, if you're visiting for the first time today, welcome. It's good to have you here this Christmas season. Hopefully you had a chance to stop by the visitor's desk. If you didn't, uh, there's a lovely group of people there would like, like to meet you and give you literature on our ministry. Um, and if you're online, you can, you can also check the, the box uh, that you're new, and someone will contact you. Uh, and last week, I announced that I was going to be teaching the Book of Revelation on Sunday nights, uh, January the 10th at 6.30. Uh, and so we've had over 300 people sign up, almost 300 in a day. Uh, and it's going to be in here, so there's limited seating. Uh, so if you don't know about it and would like to come, uh, uh, please sign up today. Do so quickly. Uh, and if you are unable to attend it, we're also going to be projecting it live online. You will still need to sign up uh, because the first night I'm going, to, I'm going to PDF you probably 60 pages of notes uh, that I've put together that you'll use those notes throughout the entire study. So uh, we're looking forward to that. Let's go to God in prayer this morning. Father, we are humbled uh, that your plan to redeem us uh, was just off the charts, that you uh, proposed to send the Son to be our Savior uh, He chose to come, and all throughout the book of John, uh, the word uh, from Jesus' mouth is that he came to do the will of he who sent him, and that was you. Thank you for the son's willingness uh, to be sent, uh, to choose a birth. None of us did that, uh, but he did. He knew why he was coming and what he was going to accomplish on that cross and in that empty tomb, so we thank you for a divine mission. May we not be indifferent toward it, and if anyone is indifferent today, uh, that doesn't know you uh, might you plow the heart today as only you can drop the seed of the gospel in and, and may it uh, spring up unto life eternal we give you our time may it be profitable may what, may what we discussed today echo in eternity and may it echo in our lives today in jesus name amen uh, the, the the late dr Dwayne gish uh, is probably best remembered uh, for his um ability to take on evolutionary scientists at at an academic uh, um, uh, format. I uh, first was introduced to him back in uh, 1980 when I was a newlywed. He was uh, lecturing uh, and debating at the campus of University of Pacific, not far from my apartment. Uh, And I told Liz, I I wanted to go hear this uh, great Christian scientist, He's best known for his work in special creationism, uh, but he was an academic force to be reckoned with. Uh, during World War II, uh, he was he served in the Pacific Theater, was awarded the Bronze um, Star for bravery in battle. Uh, he was a captain in, in the military as well. Uh, after the war, in 1949, he earned a, B, uh, a B.S. degree in in a chemistry from UCLA out in California. 1953, he secured a Ph.D. in biochemistry from Berkeley University. He then then did a short stint as a postdoctoral fellow uh, and assistant professor in biochemistry at Cornell University's Medical College. Uh, He then returned to Berkeley to be a researcher from 1956 to 1960. Uh, And then from 1960 to 1971, he was a research chemist for the Upjohn Company. In 1971, he teamed up with Dr. Henry Morris, another uh, great Christian scientist. I think he had a PhD in hydrology. Um, uh, Henry Morris was the president of the Institute of Creation uh, Research out in San Diego, where we were from. I knew of that place well. Uh, And he became the vice president of that. When I heard him in 1980, it was a real treat to hear a a very educated uh, Christian scholar talk about the validity of uh, creationism over evolution and the untenable nature of evolutionary thinking. So he invited all the professors from the science department to come to the lecture. And I remember going. I walked in, and there was a a, a sizable crowd there, probably about this size, Uh, but there were hardly any professors there. They didn't bother to show up to even listen to what he had to say, this educated man. There was one lone science professor that was seated behind me, and next to him was his loyal uh, doctoral student. Uh, And uh, throughout the lecture, uh, I kept listening to Gish's presentation and thinking to myself, who in their right mind cannot follow the logic of this evidence toward the God of the evidence? And how could you ever even debate somebody like Gish? He was so logical and so powerful in the data that he shared that night. At the end of his uh, lecture, he opened the floor up for questions. Anybody could ask anything. It was an odd moment because everybody sat there in stone silence because after his lecture, no one wanted to take him on. To show you how long ago this was, that was when they were still using slide projectors for for projection, long time ago. But the information hasn't changed. So we sat there in silence, and I'm looking around thinking, is anybody going to ask him a question? Here's the opportunity for an evolutionist, a scientist, to engage a leading Christian scientist to say, let's compare evidence and follow the logic uh, to its, its most logical conclusion. Nobody said anything. And he kept standing up there. Finally, uh, I heard the, the science professor behind me uh, talk to the doctoral student next to him and said, hey, could you ask him a question for me? <laughs> i'm like are you kidding me you have a phd and whatever and you can't even stand up and ask the your question oh i was 21 passionate for christ uh so the doctoral student uh who i'm sure wanted to get his phd one day uh said oh yeah I'll, I'll ask that question so he did he got up and he asked his question and it was a pointed question and it was a cocky question and it was a pugnacious question it wasn't a nice question GISH, BEING THE CONSUMMATE GENTLEMAN, uh, ANSWERED THE QUESTION IN SHORT ORDER, DISPATCHED IT QUICKLY. AND WITH THAT, THERE WAS STONE SILENCE AGAIN. AND WHEN HE OPENED THE FLOOR UP FOR ADDITIONAL QUESTIONS, NOBODY SAID ANYTHING. WITHIN A FEW MINUTES uh, AFTER THAT, uh, DR. GISH THANKED EVERYBODY FOR ATTENDING, uh, AND uh, DISMISSED US ALL. I'VE THOUGHT ABOUT THAT uh, LECTURE uh, MANY TIMES SINCE THEN, WHEN I WAS A YOUNG MAN, A newlywed, ONLY BEEN MARRIED PROBABLY A FEW MONTHS AT THE TIME. I thought about it much because it tells us much about people and their approach to truth. Um, Why didn't the science professor pose the question himself? What would you say? What? Pride. 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 He doesn't want to look foolish to other people in the room. Uh, Pride probably held him in his seat. Uh, Why else didn't he uh, pose the question himself? What would you say? He didn't want to be humiliated. His ego was too big doesn't you know want to be defamed in front of other students etc and he really didn't want to take his worldview which now has a bunch of holes in it and subject it to somebody who could show him some more holes he wasn't willing to do that so he sat there Uh, I would say as they left the room that day uh, as cocky as they were because they were sitting right by me uh, and you can kind of tell from the person's demeanor and the type of question that was asked uh, they didn't care much for Dr. Gish uh, who passed away, I believe, in 2013. Great man of God. But, but another thing that held that professor in his seat was indifference. He didn't care. He absolutely did not care about truth. Totally indifference. And indifference uh, to scientific truth uh, wedded uh, to a healthy, logical scientific worldview uh, is, is an interesting thing. If you have scientific truth and you wed it to a healthy worldview, then you're going to arrive at wonderful locations. Eventually, if you take your scientific truth and wed it to good scientific evidences, you'll be led to God, as Dr. Gish was. But if you wed your scientific truth to a false worldview, you will walk away from God. Indifference is a terrible thing. If you take uh, the facts at hand... Uh, and you wed the, them uh, concerning the birth of Christ, the evidence that's there for you to peruse and, and analyze, because God's given us much evidence, is to come to him in faith, uh, and you, like the professor sitting behind me, don't really care about it, uh, you will wind up not only knowing God and having a wonderful relationship with him in the here and now, but you will be uh, abandoned by God in the hereafter. I think i choose an option one. A vibrant relationship with God in the here and now and then a wonderful, amazing relationship with him in his presence when he appears. You might be sitting here today uh, an indifferent person. You don't really care about the facts of Christianity. Uh, you have probably heard about the star uh, that guided the Magi to the Christ. Uh, you've probably heard the nativity story all of your life. Uh, you've probably uh, heard more than once about the shepherds on the hillside tending their sheep and, uh, and what happened to them when the angels appeared and, and, and gave glory to God in the highest I mean, you've probably one who could sing a few Christmas carols here and there, too. But then you're indifferent to the truth of all of that stuff. You just know it, but, but it doesn't move you to belief. So it's just like the professor can hear the truth, but he's indifferent to it because his worldview says the opposite of that. and He's not willing to give it up, no matter what the evidence would say. Spiritually the same is true, as we're going to see. Uh, We have been looking at the book of uh, Matthew chapter 2. Last week, we looked at Herod, uh, that Herod had some issues, did he not? Uh, He was an extremely evil man, extremely evil. But God is going to take the evil nature of Herod and turn it against him. God is going to show him, as we talked about last week, just by way of review, that in a a tough time, under Herodian reign, couldn't have been more evil. That's when God did the tender work of the Messiah. He sent a little baby his son, to Bethlehem to be born, to be the king of kings and lord of lords. At a a, a least optimal time geopolitically is when the Christ came. So today is not a day to be uh, indifferent about Jesus, but to be inflamed by Jesus, to be empowered by Jesus. Not to hear the evidence of Jesus that we're going to talk about this morning and just shrug your shoulders and yawn and walk out. No, this is a time to press on to truth and embrace him. And the way that we do that is we analyze uh, the, the people that are in the passage t- today, uh, not Herod, but the priests, the religious leaders, who knew enough about the Messiah to, to worship the Messiah. But we're going to find out they didn't. As we look at this chapter again from another angle, uh, Matthew chapter two, verses one to nine, is what we're going to study. Uh, the main premise of the passage—it's a secondary premise uh, that we will look at today. We looked at the primary premise last week. Is revelation regarding Christ uh, leads in two directions: either to ruination, spiritual ruination, or reformation. And you have a free will; it's your choice to choose which of that shall be. We want to look, as we did last week, as we compare and contrast, we want to look at two groups of people. Um, We will look at exhibit number one, uh, which are going to stand diametrically opposed to exhibit number two. Exhibit number one are Israel's religious leaders. And then later we'll look at exhibit number two, uh, the Magi, the three Magi, who are not Jews by any stretch of the imagination. Which one of them looked at the evidence, followed the logical data uh, to the Christ? Well, not the first group. Uh, They were completely indifferent to the truth God gave them. Israel's religious leaders, notice notice what it says in verse 1. It says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, and I think that's about as far as we got last week in detail, wasn't it? Uh, Behold, what happened? Wise men came from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Uh, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Uh, The imperfect tense here in the Greek text tells you they were walking around town asking anybody and everybody in Jerusalem, Where is the king? Where's the Messiah? We have traveled 600 miles by camel. No fun ride, by the way. Across the deserts to get here. uh, And we would like to know, where where is the king? Where is the king? I'm certain that uh, uh, Herod had spies all throughout uh, Israel, and eventually the news got to him. They said, uh, we have seen his star in the east. We have come to do one primary thing. Why were they there? Worship him. Worship him. Remember, they're Gentiles. They're the goyim. You got to ask, are God's people worshiping him? The people that have the evidence? They were there, the magi. Uh, magoi is the word. Uh, the word, according to Danker's uh, Greek lexicon, refers to men of letters, esper- experts in astrology. Uh, these men were not kooks, they were not charlatans. Uh, from their culture, they were the cream of the academic crop. They were like the professor's professor. They were skilled at all great things, of mathematics, agriculture, et cetera, down to astrology. And what we're going to find is, as is, is a sidelight, not to get too far ahead of ourselves, but God is going to take the most interesting group of people that were not his people, who are, who are locked in academics plus astrology, and he's going to use them to guide them to the birth of the Messiah, Jesus. It's unbelievable. So I don't care what your system of belief is, your worldview that can be all messed up and erroneous, God can step into your false worldview, uh, mingle with a little truth here and there, and he can speak to you as he's going to do to them in just a minute. 500 years before the Magi ever hit the planet, there there was a man of God, a prophet. His name was Daniel. He was taken into captivity under Nebuchadnezzar's attack on Israel around 605 B.C., under three deportations. The first deportation, uh, Nebuchadnezzar took the cream of the academic crop of Israel, the, the young man with great potential. That was one of, the, one of them was Daniel. We all know the story of Daniel. When you get to Daniel 2, Daniel interprets for King Nebuchadnezzar the vision of the, the mighty image where God's going to tell King Nebuchadnezzar, let me show you the, five, the four world empires before the coming of the Messiah, the King of Kings. And God gives that information, or that interpretation of that dream to Daniel. And, it is, and if you have studied uh, Daniel with us several years ago, you will know just exact how exact that prophecy was. I would have become a Christian just based upon the historical fulfillment of that prophecy. Because can, you can't even figure out what your stocks are going to do by the end of the week, right? My Apple stock goes up. It goes down, it goes up, it goes down. Sometimes it goes really down, sometimes it goes really up. If you could ever figure that out, you could retire to Tahiti and supplates the rest of your life, correct? So here we have a a young man, Daniel, who who tells the king Nebuchadnezzar, the king of the mightiest army in the world, and he tells him, uh, your empire is going to be replaced by, well, this empire, and this empire is going to be replaced by this empire, and he goes through and explains all the world empires and they rose and fall, fell exactly as Daniel said, according to Deuteronomy eighteen. If a man prophesies and it comes true, he's a true prophet. That's Daniel. What does Daniel say about uh, world empires in verse forty-eight of chapter two? He tells Nebuchadnezzar in this interpretation of that dream. Says then the, after after he. Did this. It says, Then the king, after he heard the interpretation and the truth of it, promoted Daniel and gave him many great gifts. And he made him what? Ruler over the whole province of Babylon. And the chief administrator over who? Wise men. The wise men. The Magoi of Babylon. I mean, think about this. A young man carried away into captivity, never to see his friends and family and parents again, into a foreign country 600 miles away. And God uses him to speak to a godless nation fearlessly. And, and he's rewarded with being placed in upper command structure of that empire. And he's over the wise men. Do you realize that 500 years later, these same wise men who are now from the country of Parthia, who replaces the Babylonian you know, um, empire in that structure years later, 500 years later, the words of Daniel, that young man, given to him by God, are still impacting wise men. You have to stop and ask yourself. It's a whole other sermon. After I'm dead and gone, will the impact of my life for Christ still impact people 500 years after me? Huge thing. Uh, They understood exactly what was going on. How did people in this godless empire uh, come to understand that a star was going to appear to uh, announce the arrival of the Messiah? It was because Daniel must have taught them this information in his school of the wise men. They knew, uh, I'm, I'm assuming, that they must have known Numbers chapter 24, verses 17 to 19, uh, which would have been something from the Torah that Daniel would have told them. And what would they have heard there? Well, here's what we read in Numbers 24, 17. Uh, it says, I see him now. I, I, I behold him, but, but not near. He's a star. It shall come out of Jacob. A scepter, a ruler, he says, shall arise out of Israel and batter the brow of Moab. Really, the Hebrew word means to crush the skull. This star, this royal one, when he comes, will destroy the Moabite empire. And he will batter the brow of Moab, and he will destroy all the sons of Tumult. Uh, and Edom shall be his possession. Sair also is another code word for the Edomites. Sair also, his enemy, shall be a possession. While Israel does valiantly, out of Jacob one shall have dominion and destroy the remains of the city. Uh, the context of the passage is very, it's almost humorous. Israel is, a, uh, is about to enter the promised land, and, and the, the, the king, the Moabite king, Balak, whose name in Hebrew means destroyer. What mother would do that to a child? Destroyer. One who lays waste is another interpretation. He comes, and he's all worried about the, uh, the several million Jews that are in his nation, and he wants them to be uh, overthrown, so he basically hires a prophet to prophesy against them. That's going to be Balaam. And Balaam, every time Balaam gets up to prophesy against Israel, curses upon them, out of his mouth comes amazing truths. Don't you know if he'd had a mirror, he'd want to be looking at it, going, what's up with my mouth? I prophesy destruction and out comes wonder. Well, in this particular episode, uh, Balaam begins to speak, and what does he prophesy? The destruction to the destructor. Did you hear me? Is, is God funny? He's ironic, isn't he? Balaam, whose name means destroyer, is being told, You're going to be destroyed by a king that will come out of Israel one day. A star. You'll see the star. You know, if anything would have made Herod uneasy, remember, he didn't handle this news well. If anything would have made him uneasy, it's this prophecy. Why? He's an Edomite, he's from there. And so if the, if the Magi are giving him extra information and telling him, yeah, we followed the star, uh, uh, you know, it's announcing the birth of the, of the Messiah, the royal one. Oh, and by the way, he's going to crush Moab and Edom. If Herod's sitting there, he's thinking, what to himself? It's fantastic. It's the end of my empire. No, no. He's thinking, no, oh, i got to do something about that, as we studied last week. It says when he heard this in verse 3, he, he was troubled, and all of Jerusalem was troubled with him. Why was he troubled? Why was he immediately hostile? Well, when politicians think they're going to lose their power structure, what do they do? They get hostile. Hostile. Somebody said cheat. I don't know. They get hostile because they don't want to lose their power structure. And so Herod, as he's a smart, shrewd politician. Uh, he also understands that uh, these men are from uh, Parthia, and he also remembers how he took Jerusalem, if you remember the sermon last week, Antigonus. The Hasmonean teamed up with the Parthian army, attacked Jerusalem, drove Herod out of town. He had to put his family in Masada to protect them while he went to Rome to be crowned king uh, by the Senate there. But it took him three years to defeat Antigonus, the Hasmonean Jew, and the Parthians before he reclaimed Jerusalem and Israel for himself as the new king of kings. And so he's listening to these magi, and he's thinking, you're from where? Where, where were they from? <laughs> Parthia, the east? And you've come here for what reason? Oh, we've we've followed the star to the king, the king of kings, and it's not you. See, he has a bad taste in his mouth about people from the east. They were his problem. I'm getting to my sermon in just a minute. <laughs> Verse 4 says, when they had all gathered all the chief priests and the scribes and the people together, he inquired of them, Herod, uh, I have a question. This is an innocent question. Where, where, where is the Christ to be born? Where, where is he? going to be when he hits the planet. Uh, who were these wise men that were called into the room? Uh, well, they were the chief priests. He says, I, I've got to hear from the Torah, you experts in the Torah. I, I need to bring you all into my throne room. And I did ask you one simple softball question. If anybody knows where the Messiah is going to be born, it's you. You are the teachers of the Torah, the law and the prophets. The chief priest, that's who comes in there, the chief priest. The chief priests are from the tribe of Levi, descendants of Aaron. Uh, these men, uh, uh, there was only one that served at the, at the day and time. Uh, if you study Israel's history during the Hasmonean period uh, and beyond, the high priesthood became kind of a political football, uh, up for like the highest bidder. But the high priest uh, resided over the Sanhedrin, translated into our vernacular, he's over the Supreme Court. He's a powerful man. And he's there, it says plural, chief priest plural, which means... There's retired ones there, too. If anybody should know something about the Bible, it would be them. Like if you have a theological question that you really can't solve, who do you call? Yeah. Yeah, I get emails all the time, theological questions and stuff, because your assumption is if you're stuck theologically, I probably know, not that I'm omniscient, no way, but I might be able to point you to a book or two. It's that kind of reasoning. If anybody knows where he's supposed to be born, I'm thinking the religious leaders should know. And so they bring him in. They bring them in. The chief priest come in, men who should know. These men are the people who know the Old Testament forwards and backwards. They also know the Mishnah oral law. They know it well. Who comes in with them? Well, it says scribes come in with them. These are the lawyers. Any lawyers here? We love you. What kind of things do you know? All things pertaining to law. Uh, last year, I, I redid our Liz and I redid our trust. Went through all the documentation to update it because we hadn't updated it since the kids were little, and lots changed since then. I was broke then. I'm not broke totally now, and you know things change as you get older, right? You have more things, and you know. And so we went and, and went through all the documentation. I don't, What are you talking about? What's that term mean? Who's the trustee? Who's the tru- What's the trust All that stuff. When you want somebody that really knows something like this, you bring in the priest for the religious question, and then the, the scribes and the lawyers who really know the finer details of these things. The scribes come in. There's two kinds of scribes. There's a Pharisaical, Pharisee scribe. Uh, they, were, they were the conservatives. And then there was the Sadducean scribes. They were the progressives. For them, truth was fluid. It depended. So the Pharisees are going to hold to the law tightly, while the Sadducees on the other side are going to be going, well, that might have been what was then, but things are so much different now. They usher them in. What did they say to him? I'm still getting to my sermon. Verse 5, what did they say? They said to him, the answer to your question is pretty simple. It's a softball question, quoting from Micah the prophet, chapter 5, verse 1. In Bethlehem of Judea is the location of the Messiah. Why? For thus it is written by the prophet, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you, Bethlehem, this insignificant little hamlet, five miles southwest of uh, Jerusalem, from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. That's where he's going to be born. Bethlehem, Bethlehem. Uh, In the Hebrew, it's house of bread. The bread of life shall be born there. They knew exactly the verse to quote to tell Herod the answer to his question. I'm going to read... uh, what the Micah chapter 5 verse 2 says in, uh, translated from the Hebrew text. It says this. It so, says, But you, Bethlehem, uh, though you are little among the thousands of uh, Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me one who shall be the ruler of Israel. And notice what he adds. Whose goings forth are from old and from everlasting. Uh, Kylan Dalich, the two leading uh, Hebrew scholars uh, on the Old Testament text Uh, wonderful series of books that they've written many, many years ago, uh, say that this statement, this clause presupposes divinity. Who are they saying? Well, they're saying he's going to be born in Bethlehem. Who's he going to be? The eternal one. They not only knew where, they know who. They know who. Highly educated religious leaders knew the God-man was coming, the son of David. They knew the city that he was coming to. They more than knew this. This is only one prophecy. Alfred Edersheim, a converted Jew, a scholar, uh, who has written a book uh, that I set out to read many years ago. It's called The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah. Read it. It will change your life. But it's not short. It's probably 1,500 pages. Uh, But in that book, he has an appendix. Appendix number nine contains 456 exact prophecies that that they would have known concerning the birth and the life and the ministry of the Messiah, not 5, not 10, 456 prophecies. 75 prophecies from the Pentateuch. 243 from the prophets. 138 from the, from the, the writings, Hagiographa, which would be Ruth, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, et cetera. A lot of prophecies. Do you think it's really coincidence that Christ fulfilled all of those prophecies? No, no. Uh, the fact that Jesus fulfilled all of these prophecies Is mathematically, statistically impossible. There was a book written many years ago, and I've quoted this again in case you're saying you've talked about this before, you're absolutely right, because some truth is worth repeating again, correct? Because brain cells tend to die daily. Peter Stoner wrote a book years ago, I read it years ago, as a young man, it's called Science Speaks. In that, he says it's so mathematically impossible for, uh, statistically, that Christ fulfilled 456 prophecies. Let's just boil it down mathematically to uh, 8 of 60. Let's just say he fulfilled 8 of 60. What would be the mathematical probability, Stoner says? It is 1 in 10 to the 17th power. 1 in 10 with how many zeros? Seventeen. Well, what is that? Here's what he goes on to say about how much that really is, in case you're thinking, that's not that big big of a deal. Christ fulfilling just eight of 60 prophecies. Here's what he says. Take 10 to the 17th silver dollars, lay them out on the face of Texas. He must have been from there. "Uh, They will cover the state two feet deep. Now mark one of these silver dollars and stir the whole mass thoroughly all over the state. Blindfold the man, tell him that he can travel as far as he wishes but he must pick up one silver dollar at one time and say that this is the right one. What chance would he have of getting the right one on one pick? Just the same chance that the prophets would have of writing these eight prophecies and having them all come true in any one man. Who's Jesus? Why am I a Christian? Well, because of the evidence that God has given, and you study the evidence, and you drop your vain worldview, and you embrace the Messiah. Because the math says he is who he is. Do you see? God gives you 456 exact prophecies. Why? He's in your face, isn't he? He's telling you, are you kidding? This is over the top. Who quoted this information and had an appendix at the end of a book many years later of another Jew? You should read the appendix. It's probably 0.5 font. I could hardly see it. Read it while you're young. Jesus puts all that evidence out there for you and says, aren't you going to believe the evidence? See, the scribes and the Pharisees, the chief priests, the religious leaders who should have known, because when you go to a religious leader with a religious question, you're expecting a religious guy to know. They can quote it, but they are so indifferent, they don't believe it. Now think about this. This is totally pivotal. How can a person be indifferent toward hard prophetic data points? How can you be? That they're there. The religious leaders were indifferent. I mean, they understood Numbers 24, that prophecy. Uh, they understood because they quoted it, Micah chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. They totally knew that, but that's all they did with the evidence. They could just academically, as lawyers and priests, quote it, but they didn't embrace it. Here's what I was thinking this week as I was sitting on my desk looking out the windows at the parking lot on a beautiful day. Why didn't anybody Follow the wise men five miles to Bethlehem. Don't you think if you were one of those PhD guys in the Torah, you would have looked at your friends and said, hey, let's give them the benefit of the doubt. They're on camels. We got camels. Let's just go for a ride. And they said there's some kind of astral projection that's a total anomaly that's never been seen before that's guiding them. It's kind of a weird star because it's guiding them there. Let's just go see. What can it hurt? Did anybody get on a donkey, camel, and follow them? No. No, they stayed put in Jerusalem. Why? Because they were totally indifferent. Had they joined the mad guy and the magi as they went, they would have seen the star that appeared, that crack in the cosmos of the Shekinah glory showing through, of God moving that through our dimension to make it hover over the birth of the Christ child. This is an unusual star. They would have seen that, and they could have said, It's unbelievable. Those guys were right. This is the Messiah. But they didn't. What kept the religious man from heading to Bethlehem? I'll give you four things. Number one, fear of reprisal from Herod. See, because it says all Jerusalem was bothered and troubled by this word of the wise men. So were the religious leaders. Fear of reprisal from Herod. See, when you have a despotic totalitarian ruler who's known for doing ruthless things, it will begin to bend and shape even the best people who are scared to death to make the right decision. Number two, fear of losing faith with your academic colleagues. Hades will be full of people who were afraid of losing academic faith when all they had to do was follow the star to Bethlehem and worship at the foot of the Christ child and be saved. Academic fear. Fear of losing religious power. John Steinbeck said once, power does not corrupt, fear corrupts, perhaps the fear of the loss of power. To who? A little babe. Henry Kissinger once said, power is the ultimate aphrodisiac. Indeed it is. Once a person gets it, they'll do anything to keep it. And even a religious leader who knows all the biblical evidence can know things about God, but doesn't know God. I'm going to say this again. You can know tons of information handed to you by your grandmother, your uncle, your father, etc. A lot of information about who Jesus is and why he came and yawn at it because of indifference. How about academic indifference? See, they were so locked into their knowledge, their love of traditions from the Mishnah, their day-to-day routines, uh, their prayers on public corners for all to hear them and see their amazing religiosity, they had seen and heard about false Christ before if you study Israel, Israel's history. This is one of the first time that somebody said there was a Messiah born. And they're like, and I fell for that before. I'm not, I'm not doing that again. That's embarrassing. No, they, they didn't want to waste their time with another claim, so indifference kept them in their, in their chairs. They knew a lot about God, but they didn't know God. Is that you? You know a lot about God, but you don't know God. See, there's a whole other group of people here that, knew a lot very little about God and came to know God that's exhibit number two we close with this verse seven then Herod when he had secretly called the wise men determined from them uh, what time the star appeared and he sent them to Bethlehem and said go and search diligently for the young child and when you have found him, bring him back to me that I might come and worship him what a lie when they heard the king they departed and behold the star which they had seen in the east went before them. This is how you know it's not a normal star. It's moving. It's moving in front of them. Until it came and stood over where the the young child was. They're following. uh, Where is it? (laughs) You can't miss it's right there. And it just stopped. And now there's a beam over this little house. That's where the Christ was. Think about these men. Men with very little revelatory knowledge, who are not Jews. These are not their holy books follow the little bit of information that God gives them, and they come and find the Christ, and they worship him. See, they left comfortable thinking for uncomfortable thinking. They didn't care what people thought of them. Uh, They didn't care how much it cost them to ride 600 miles out across the desert. They just knew that God gave them revelatory insight. It matched the data point of the star, and they knew something amazing is happening. We got to go east, go, go from the east to the west and see where this takes us. And they wound up at the feet of the Christ child. See, God might be doing the same thing for you today. You might have a lot of revelatory light, but you're indifferent toward it. My prayer for you this week has been that you would drop the indifference today and embrace the Christ. But you might be like the wise man, locked in false systems of belief, but you're searching for God, and you're listening to God, and he comes and speaks to you. And he says, follow this to me, and I will show you myself. Years ago, in John 4, there was a a lady, had all kinds of issues. She's called the Samaritan woman, a half-breed Jew. Uh, Jesus met her one day uh, at the hottest part of the day at a well, and he began to talk to her. Within a few minutes, uh, Jesus told her more about her life than any man that didn't know her could know. He told her that uh, she had multiple husbands in her past, and the man that she was with presently was a sinful relationship. The information so overpowers her uh, she's asking Jesus because He's telling her, I, "I can give you life where you'll never come to the, uh, the water, you'll never have to come to the well again." And and she's like, "What could I have some of that?" And Jesus is basically going to tell her, "I'm the well." See, this lady who wasn't really searching for God, locked in a false system of belief, wasn't wasn't she bought into Samaritan theological thinking? That's the opposite of Jewish thinking. She runs into the Messiah one day when she wasn't even looking for him, and He says, "Hey, I know you're thirsty." And the ground in your life is really parched because all the sin you've committed, and I know the sin because I know the men, but I'm here to, to pour water all over your soul, water of life. What did she do? She said, this man is a prophet. This man is the Messiah. She goes and tells all of her friends. See, God came to her, just like he came to those magi over in Parthia at some way and time. I can't wait. When you get to heaven, what are your questions? Don't you want to find these three guys and go... What happened? How did he get your attention? You know, God doesn't care about all the baggage that you have. He came to deal with your sinful baggage. And he will come to you in a variety of ways and speak to you and say, hey, you need to leave all this behind. Look at the evidence I've given you and embrace it by faith and I'll save your soul. And water of life will pour in and through you and your life will never be the same. May you do that today. To bow before Christ and say, God... I've been indifferent for far too long toward the evidences of who you are today. I embrace you by faith. He will redeem you, give you peace and hope. And boy, that's exactly what you need, and you'll never be the same. Let's pray. God, thank you. Just for the story that's so real, so raw, uh, we know the scriptures are from you because you mince no words. You cast even your, your people in, in a light that if men were writing this, they would extol how great the priests were. But you, you put it out there, the truth of it. And you show what they needed to do to get saved, of which they did not do from what we can see. We pray for those in our church today, those online who watch, who are locked in indifference about the story of the Christ, that this might be the day their, ha- their heart is so open to you uh, that they say, like the woman at the well, I want the water of life, which is Christ. And you will cause that water to well up into their lives to all eternity at that great moment of faith. May we who know you and walk with you be patient and courageous as we share the story of the Christ child. And we give you thanks for who you are in Christ's name. Amen. God bless you. Uh, May he make his face shine upon you. Have a wonderful day.